Wow, it is exciting to be able to be here. I feel, I feel unqualified. Um, I, I don't come from a typical church-going, pew-sitting, hymn-singing family. I come from a family filled with bodybuilding, tobacco-chewing, beer-drinking thugs. And that's just the women. Sadly, it was... <laughs> I'm actually not joking. My family... I was raised in North Denver. Before it was the Highlands, it was North Denver, 20th and Federal. That's where I was raised. And um, my family, you know, was a high, at the time, it was the highest crime rate area in Denver. My family was part of the crime problem. Um, three of my uncles are title-winning bodybuilders. The fourth one could bench press 500 pounds. The fifth one was a Golden Gloves boxer. I don't know what happened to me. I was at the bottom of the gene pool. Uh, but my family was this really rough family that the Small Dones, uh, the Denver Organized uh, Crime Group, used to call my uncles the Crazy Brothers. So when the mafia thinks your family's dysfunctional, that's not good. Uh, my mom was the only girl, five brothers. She was the only girl, the sister, and they were all afraid of her because she was tough. She was like the woman at the well with a baseball bat. And uh, I remember on Friday night, she'd say, you want to watch cops? And I'm like, yeah. So we'd get in our car and we'd follow the cop cars to the scenes of the crime in our neighborhood. And uh, so I was raised in this very unbelieving family. But then a preacher from the suburbs in Arvada right? West Arvada. This preacher whose nickname was Yankee, even though he spoke with a Southern accent, long story, on a dare from a guy named Bob Daly who went to his church. Bob Daly knew my Uncle Jack, and my Uncle Jack was the toughest one of my uncles, spent time in prison once for choking two cops unconscious who were trying to arrest him on assault charges. He looked like the Wolverine, but bigger, all right? Big lamb chop, sideburns, scary guy, but Yankee was fearless, and he would do whatever it took to reach people who didn't know Christ with the gospel of Christ. So Bob Daly dared him. He went down to North Denver, knocked on Jack's door. Jack came to the door, no shirt on, tattoos everywhere, the biggest German shepherd dog you've ever seen in your life, two beer cans, one for drinking beer, one for spit and chew. You did not want to get those mixed up. My Uncle Jack talked like this. He goes, what do you want? Yankee said, I'm here on a, on a dare from Bob Daly to tell you about Jesus. He goes, well, I don't know Jesus, but I know Bob, so I'll give you five minutes. He brings them into the kitchen table. They sit down, and Yankee explains to him, not religion, but how to have a relationship with Jesus Christ, that Jesus came for sinners, and that Jesus died for sinners, and by faith alone in Christ alone, because that same Jesus rose from the dead, he offers eternal life to all those who trust in him. My Uncle Jack had never heard the gospel, and for the first time, it clicked. Yankee said, does that make sense? He goes, hell yeah. That was a sinner's prayer was, hell yeah. <laughs> and have you ever met a new believer that came, comes to Christ and doesn't know all the rules yet? That was my Uncle Jack because he started telling other people about Jesus. And if they didn't take Jesus, he could give them Moses right upside their head, right? <laughs> One day he's in a sauna sharing Christ with another bodybuilder. But there's a guy from a different religion who keeps interrupting, trying to argue. Uh, and my Uncle Jack doesn't know the rule about loving your enemies yet. So he goes, hey, I'm trying to tell him about the love of Jesus. Why don't you shut your stinking mouth, all right? Shut it. He continues to share Christ. The guy interrupts again. He goes, yo, one more time, I'm taking you out. He shares Christ. The guy interrupts again. Boom, Jack hits this guy. The guy falls to the ground, looks up and goes, Jesus didn't go around hitting people like that. He goes, well, I ain't Jesus. I'm Jack. Didn't know the rules yet. But in one month, he brought 250 people out to church. Gang members. Thugs, mafia, tough guys, anyone, 
everyone. Because once my Uncle Jack heard the gospel, he was going to do whatever it took to reach as many people for Christ as he possibly could. The same gospel that changed him, he wanted to see change everybody. One by one by one, I witnessed as a little kid in North Denver, my family being absolutely transformed by the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to see this city changed? It's the gospel. You know, March 12, 1989, I planted a church with my friend Rick, Grace Church, 69th and Sheridan. I was pastor there for 10 years. Planted a church. I didn't know what in the world I was doing. Um, I graduated from Colorado Christian College uh, uh, University with a degree in youth ministry. Rick actually didn't even graduate from college. I walked into his office. He had his high school diploma hanging on the wall. I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm trying to establish credibility as a pastor. I go, then pop that sucker down. You and I are going to have to establish our credibility in a whole different way. Dumb and dumber plant a church, right? <laughs> but we wanted to do whatever it took to reach the lost with the gospel. And what I love about Novation, what I love about Scott and Brian and the team here, you guys are willing to do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel of Christ, right? That's why this church exists. That's why you had 12 baptisms last week. That's why you want to see more and more and more people coming to a saving knowledge of Christ. And when I think of whatever it takes, I don't think of Yankee. I don't think of Jack. I don't even think of Scott. I think of Jesus. And I think of one passage in Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, when four guys are doing whatever it takes to get their friend to Jesus. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. So many gathered there, there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus and after digging through it, lowered the mat the paralyzed man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like this? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, why are you thinking these things? Which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or take up your mat and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I tell you, take up your mat, go home. He got up, took up his mat, walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we've never seen anything like this. They were willing to do whatever it took to get their friend to Jesus. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get that one friend to Jesus? I want you to ask God through his Holy Spirit during this sermon to reveal to you the name of that one person God is pressing on your heart. Could be a neighbor. Could be a family member. Could be a friend. Could be a coworker. Could be a classmate. Are you willing to do whatever it takes to get them to Jesus. It's worth the trouble. It is worth the trouble. Now, you are risking something when you share the gospel, but it is worth the trouble because he can heal them. He can heal their bodies. I mean, God is called the great physician. And this man in particular had seen the devastating effects of paralysis in his life. And his friends had seen that devastating effect. 
And they said, we're going to get him to Jesus so Jesus can heal this man, our friend. And I know we may have different theological persuasions in the room, but I think all of us can agree that God is the great physician and that the Holy Spirit, when he chooses to, can heal. I've seen this firsthand in my own life, in my own family. I remember about 18 years ago, I was in Washington, D.C., and I was at a gathering of leaders, ministry leaders, from different denominations and different parachurch organizations, youth ministry leaders. And there's like 40 or 50 of us were praying in this big retreat center, this beautiful retreat center, and there's different pockets of prayer tables. Uh, there were the Baptists that were praying, right? Every once in a while you hear an amen, right? You had the Methodists in this table. You had uh, parachurch organizations. I don't even think they were praying. They were talking sports, right? Somehow, I get stuck at the Pentecostal table. Now, I was saved in a Baptist church, raised in a Bible church. Uh, I have a lot of Pentecostal friends. I myself am not Pentecostal. But I get stuck at this Pentecostal table. And for those of you in this room who, who are Pentecostal or no Pentecostal, you know they can pray loud, right? They get pretty intense. They get very active in their prayer time. And leading the prayer time is this guy named Bob, right? And Bob, man, he freaked me out because he kind of kicked in the door when he came in, and he had a just, just dressed to the T's. He had kind of TV preacher hair. He had been on CBN, TBN, you name a BN, and he had been on it. He had gold on his fingers. He's like, how's everybody? You remind me of Ellis. Oh, what's going on, everybody? And I'm like, what's happening here? And he's kind of leading the prayer parade, and we're, we're going around the prayer circle. He's like, what's your prayer request? And the guy next to him is like, I want to claim a million souls for the kingdom. He goes, well, let's pray. And they are just praying, and they're getting louder. They're getting all worked up. And I'm right in the middle of them. Again, saved in the Baptist church, raised in a Bible church. I'm trying to get in on this. So every once in a while, I'd say, make it so, Lord. Just kind of throw that out there. <laughs> so I wasn't left out. And he gets around to me. And I'm trying to calm them down. Everybody's praying for their ministry. So I said, you know, I'll pray for a personal prayer request. What's your prayer request? I go, well, pray for my wife and I. We've been married for 10 years and we can't have kids. That was the wrong thing to say to Bob. He said, well, I've prayed for hundreds of couples. They've never failed to have kids. He goes, gather around, boys. I'm like, no, 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 no. They all get up. With their hand on my head, they start praying, dear God, right now I pray you touch this man's sperm and bring it to life. I'm like, no, 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 no. What's happening? What is happening? And I pray you touch his wife's eggs and bring them together in a holy collision of life and love. I'm like, mental picture, mental picture, mental picture, mental picture. He prays for what seemed like hours. It was probably two minutes. He gets done. He goes, it is done. It is done in the name of Jesus. I go, it ain't quite done yet, Bob. Because faith without works is dead. And I don't think you can use that word in a prayer. Three weeks later, we found out two months later, traced it back. Three weeks later, my wife got pregnant. I sent him a postcard, dear Bob. It is done. <laughs> Thanks for your prayer. See, Bob, Bob was praying specifically in faith, and it was God's will to heal, and God did. And I believe sometimes we pray like wimps. We do not pray in faith. And we do not go boldly before the throne of God. And I believe we need to take not just physical prayer requests for physical healing, but every prayer request in faith to God and pray with boldness. Does he always give a yes? No. Does he always give what's best? Yes. He can heal their souls, whatever it takes. 
Not just their bodies, he can heal their souls. My mom, I watched her. My mom was a lot like the woman at the well. She'd been married four times. I was a result of a one-night stand, never met my biological father. Mom was very violent. She was very angry. She was very guilt-ridden. And I remember I went to Yankees Church and Yankees Youth Group, and Yankee had a different kind of youth group. They, they didn't just have entertainment and games and a lesson. They trained and equipped us how to share our faith. They gave us a cause and a mission. By the way, that's what Dare to Share came out of because Yankee believed in the power and potential of teenagers to reach and shake their schools for Christ and the communities for Christ, and he treated us like we were adults on a mission, so we acted like it. He trained us and equipped us, and the first person the Holy Spirit put on my heart was my mom because I knew my mom had almost aborted me. She did not know that I knew that. My grandma told me. She drove from Denver to Boston to have an illegal abortion. My grandparents found out about it, said, you come back and have that kid. We'll help you raise him. So every time she saw me, she was filled with guilt. Oftentimes, she would just burst out into tears. So here's this tough lady from North Denver who's filled with guilt and pain. But Yankee trained me how to share the gospel, and I was going to do whatever it took to heal her soul, to get her to Christ. And I would share Christ with her again and again and again and again. And year after year, Finally, when I was 15 years old, we sat at the kitchen table, not too far from here, because by this time, we moved to 87th and Wagner in Westminster. I remember telling my mom, Mom, Jesus died for you. If you believe in him, you receive eternal life. She's smoking a cigarette. She goes, you mean to tell me he paid the price for all my sins? I go, yeah. She goes, even the bad ones. I go, they're all bad to him. (laughs) She took a drag. She says, I believe. And in that moment, she put her faith in Christ. Her soul was saved. Her soul was healed. Fourteen years ago, she went to be with the presence of the Lord. And now she's doing great. Somebody asked me, hey, how's your mom doing? They didn't know. I said, she's doing great. She's dancing all the time, stopped smoking, singing, best shape of her life. She's dead. And they're like, oh, I don't know what to say. She's doing great. He can heal their souls. It's worth the trouble. It's also worth the risk. I want you to think for a moment about this story. We read this story and go, hmm, interesting. Read, think about this story. They, these four guys bring their friend, the paralytic friend to Jesus. They're carrying him. They want to get him in front of Jesus, but the house is crowded. The living room is crowded. The doorway is crowded. They cannot get in. So they climbed the roof, and they, they literally cut a hole through the roof. Now, I did a little bit of research on ancient roofs. They had two to four inches of clay for waterproofing on top, and one to two feet of their form of insulation, which was twigs and branches and cross beams. So literally, when it says they dug through the roof, they cut through the roof, they, they, they were taking time to do this. As a matter of fact, they probably had to have some sort of tool or instrument to be able to do that. I want you to imagine you're in there listening to Jesus teach. Everything's good. Then on the roof, you start hearing this, right? And you're like, what in the world is going on? And it goes on and it goes on, right? And it goes on and it goes on for, I would guess, 20 to 40 minutes to cut a hole that was big enough to lower a full-grown man through, right? And I'm qualified to make this assessment. 
Because for eight years of my life, I was a roofer. That's what I did for eight years of my life. Before I was full-time as a pastor, full-time as a Dare to Share guy, I was a full-time roofer. And I'm telling you right now, it would take at least 20 to 40 minutes to cut a hole that big in a roof to be able to drop a full-grown man, lower a full-grown man through. You don't want to drop him through. You want to lower him through, right? And this was a very interesting thing they were doing because they were risking their physical safety. One of the things you know about roofing when you become a roofer is you have to be very careful about what you're standing on. And when you start cutting holes in roofs and really taking away your support, you can fall through that roof and die. I've seen a lot of roofers get hurt. So they were risking their physical safety to get their friend to Jesus. They were not just risking their physical safety, they were risking their money. We don't think about this, but somebody had to fix the roof afterward. And I'm sure they gathered together and said, okay, we're going to tear this roof up. Afterward, we'll put the money together and get it fixed. So they were risking their money. Not only that, but they were risking public humiliation and potential ostracization from the synagogue. Because they most likely knew that in that crowd were Pharisees, And when those Pharisees, those spiritual leaders, saw their act of faith, believing that Jesus was the Messiah, that he could heal, they would ostracize that group from the synagogue. Now, the synagogue was the number one place you wanted to be able to hang out. It was a social center in the Jewish culture. And to be kicked out of the synagogue was a big, big deal. But they were willing to risk that to get their friend to Jesus. What do you want to risk? Are you willing to risk the potential of being ostracized, mocked, marginalized? Because sometimes it's hard. Sometimes it's not just 20 to 40 minutes to get somebody to Jesus. Sometimes it's months or years. I tell the story about my uncle's and the radical conversions. There's one uncle I have to leave out of the story, Uncle Richard, because Uncle Richard, when before other uncles and my mom ended up coming to Christ, Uncle Richard thought the family turned insane. He's like, you've all turned into Jesus freaks. And most of us were in Denver. He lived in Arizona, Scottsdale, Arizona. So whenever he came into town and the uncles tried to share Christ, he goes, hey, man, I don't want any of this stuff. You guys are, you guys turn crazy on me. And I remember when my grandfather died, I was 15 years old. My uncles asked me to give the gospel at his funeral, so I did. There's like 500 people there. I gave the gospel. I gave an invitation. I had everybody bow their heads and close their eyes. I remember I had everybody bow their head and close their eyes. Everybody else had their heads bowed and their eyes closed, except for my uncle Richard, who was just sitting in the front row like this. You ain't getting me, boy. I said, if that makes sense, would you raise your hand if you're trusting in Jesus? Hands went up all over the place. Not Uncle Richard. He's just shaking his head. So I wrote him a letter that next week. Sent it to him. Gave the gospel in the letter. Called him up on the phone the next week after that. Uncle Richard, did you get my letter? Yeah. How's your mom? Just change the subject. So you know what we did? My uncles and me, our family, we didn't give up. Because there were barriers to get our friend, our uncle, my my uncle to Jesus. And you know what we said? We're going to pray through those barriers. And we're going to keep praying. We're going to keep bringing it up. We're going to keep loving him. 
praying for him. We're going to care for him, and we're going to share the gospel with him, and we're not going to give up until he puts his faith in Christ. And we try to be loving about it and kind about it, but we're not going to give up. So we just kept pounding through. Twelve years later, he was coming into town, this time for another funeral, his own. Because he had stage four cancer, he was going to die. My uncles desperately tried to share Christ with him. He refused to believe. But by this time, I'm pastoring a church. And they say, hey, let's go hear our little nephew preach one last time. They talk him into it. He sits on the back row. My, here comes all these bodybuilders, my uncles and cousins sitting in the back row. Felt like our church was being invaded by the sons of anarchy, just kind of sitting in the last two rows. And my Uncle Richard, again, was on the end. And I, gave, I preached my sermon at the end. I gave the gospel and I gave an invitation, and this time, boom, his hand went up. And boom, all my uncles were crying because they were peeking through their fingers down the row to see if he raised his hand. And in three months he lived after that, he shared Christ with more people than the average Christian would share their entire lives because now he was going to do whatever it took. We were going to do whatever it took to reach him, and now he was going to do whatever it took to reach as many people as he could before he died. Are you willing to do whatever it takes? Are you willing to pray? Are you willing to care? Are you willing to share? Are you willing to open up your mouth and share the gospel of Christ? And some of you came here. You came here, and you, you don't know what to do with Jesus yet. I, I want you to listen closely because you know what? That sound, that's the sound of your friend inviting you to church the first time. That sound is the sound of your mom who's been praying for your salvation. That sound is the sound of the conviction of the Holy Spirit who's doing whatever it takes to bring you from darkness to light. Whatever it takes. Why should we be willing to do whatever it takes to get others to Jesus? Because Jesus was willing to do whatever it took to get to us. Jesus risked his riches and reputation. Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In other words, something to be held on to. But he made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. This is crazy stuff. It is the most amazing, insane, astounding, humbling story in the history of humanity. And it's true. 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ, in a sense, picked up an ax in heaven. And he dug a hole through the floor and he lowered himself Jesus became fully God. He was fully God, but he became fully God and fully human. He gave up everything to do it. He was the King of kings and Lord of lords. There's not a storm that rumbled or a leaf that rustled outside of his sovereign command. He literally held the universe together by the word of his power. The epicenter of worship in heaven. Every angel, every saint, even the powerful seraphim, which flew around his throne, covering their eyes, shielding themselves from the brightness of his glory, who worshiped him in utter awe. He gave all that up. To become one of us. And he risked. He risked his riches. He risked his physical safety. He lived among us. And then praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's, he's praying, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to rescue humanity other than my death, other than my separation from you on the cross, if there's any other way, then the pain, 
that, that, that I see in the atonement contract, if there's a clause in that atonement contract, if there's any other way, find it. But after three hours of praying so intensely that literally his blood corpuscles broke and he was sweating blood, he said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Whatever it takes, Father. And then he's taken by the Roman soldiers and he's stripped of his clothes and he's beaten. They put him on the back of a stump. They chain him there, take a cat of nine tails, a rod with nine strands of leather with broken pieces of pottery and glass and nails and they fling it into his back and they do it again and again and again until his back, his buttock and his legs were nothing but bloody ribbons of flesh and muscle and sinew and half the people that went on the stump died on the stump. That's why they nicknamed this beating the half death. He was beaten by the Roman soldiers so badly that according to the book of Isaiah, he did not even look human. They take a crown of thorns, two and a half to three and a half inches long. They put it on his skull. They beat it into his skull. And then they beat his face with a rod. At any time, he could have rescued himself by calling on the Father. But he was willing to do whatever it took. And nailed to the cross, hanging by three spikes on a cross made of wood, naked and twisted and dying, before a mocking crowd. He's willing to risk his closest relationship because at one point he screams out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sakbathani, which means my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because in that moment, God the Father took all of his wrath and all of his anger and all of his hatred for all of your sin and all of my sin and all of everyone's sin and he poured it out in full measure on the body, the spirit, and the soul of Jesus. And for the first time, there was a tremor in the Trinity as a father in a way I cannot comprehend turned his back on his son. And Jesus screamed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And moments later, he screamed the words that would change the course of humanity. It is finished. Because Jesus absorbed God's wrath, God's anger for your sin and my sin and everyone's sin in that moment on the cross. And it was finished. And he bowed his head and he died. Whatever it takes. That same Jesus rose physically from the grave. And he is here with us today. And he's given us two calls. First call is a call to be rescued. Some of you in this room, you, you don't have a relationship with God yet. Your sins are not forgiven. You don't know for sure you're going to go to heaven when you die. You don't know for sure God is your dad. You don't know your mission and purpose on this earth as a God-given quest for you. You can know it. See, God... He created you to be in a relationship with him. He loves you so much. But our sins, they separate us from God. He's a perfect holy God. He loves us, but he hates our sin. And those sins could never be removed by good deeds. You know what religion says? Turn, try, cry. Maybe you can turn enough and try enough and cry enough to remove that barrier. No, you can't. So 2,000 years ago, Jesus came to the earth lived a perfect life we could never live, and died the horrible death that we deserved. Paying the price for sin, Jesus died and rose again. 
Now, everyone who trusts in him alone has eternal life. It's not a matter of trying, it's a matter of trusting. If you simply believe that Jesus died for you and trust in him alone to forgive you for your sins, you receive everlasting life. And that life with Jesus, it starts now. Not when you die, it starts now and it lasts forever. So now he'll give you purpose, he'll give you hope. You can call God dad. And he'll never leave you or forsake you. So if you came to church today, but you don't yet know your heavenly father, you don't yet know your sins are forgiven, I'm going to give you a moment to know that. So just with heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, every head bowed, every eye closed, no one looking around, if that made sense to you for the very first time, and you're ready to put your faith in Jesus, you can say this simple, silent prayer in your heart to God. Dear God, I'm a sinner. I mess up. I fall short. But I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe he rose again. And I trust in him alone to give me the free gift of everlasting life. With heads bowed and eyes closed, no one looking around, if that message made sense and you just put your faith in Christ, I'd like to know who you are so I can pray for you. I want you to know, saying a prayer doesn't get you to heaven, it's your faith in Christ that gets you your forgiveness of sins and adopted into the family of God. So with heads bowed and eyes closed, if that made sense for the first time, and you're trusting in Jesus, receiving that gift of eternal life, can you simply raise up your hand and put it right back down? God bless you. God bless you. Anybody else? I'm trusting in Jesus. Just raise up your hand and put it right back down. God bless you. Anyone else? Just raise up your hand. God bless you. Everyone, look up. Let's give God a hand for these four who've indicated faith in Christ. Now, those of you who raised your hand or you put your faith in Christ, I want you to know this decision is a private decision that needs to be made public. That's what baptism is all about. Baptism was you stand in the water and say, guess what? I believe in Jesus. I'm on team Jesus. Because you're not just getting saved to forgiveness of your sins. You're getting saved into a family, the family of God. And your family wants to celebrate with you. So will you please let Pastor Scott know at the end, man, I believed in Jesus today. I received that gift of eternal life. And the next baptism service, you can make that proclamation. Baptism doesn't save you. Just like having a ring doesn't make me married. It's just a sign that I am, right? Uh, baptism is a sign to everybody that, man, you believed in Jesus, and it's a celebration. So, like, once again, let's welcome these four into the family of God. So that first call is a call to be rescued. Four answered that call today. The second call is this, a call to rescue. So I'm going to ask you to do something dangerous. I'm going to ask you to tear a hole through the roof to get your friend to Jesus. I'm going to ask you to bring up the gospel with somebody who doesn't know, and I'm going to ask you to do it in a pretty radical way. But I'm going to give you a way to do it. Before I do that, I want to just tell you about a couple things. One, 
Would you, you know, we, uh, I work with a ministry called Dare to Share. We train teenagers all over the nation how to share the gospel. Two weeks ago, we had 93 satellite sites from Fairbanks, Alaska to Puerto Rico, live from Faith Bible Chapel. We did a seven and a half hour training and equipping uh, where we mobilized students via simulcast to share the gospel uh, on October 13th. And we all went out and we collected canned food for local rescue missions and we collected like 26,000 uh, canned food items. But we were able to share the gospel with over 8,000 people, uh, teenagers sharing Christ with teenagers. They used their cell phones and the Dare to Share live app to upload gospel conversations, starting uh, videos. So literally, one of those gospel conversations that were recorded could be 100 on Facebook. So potentially tens of thousands of people across the nation heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm going to ask you, would you join our prayer movement? At the very end, you can go back and talk to Jill and sign up a prayer thing. Once every two weeks, uh, just send you out a prayer for the next generation. It's called I Pray. Be praying for Dare to Share. And be, uh, be, I really encourage you guys, uh, this next year we're going to do it October 12th. Make sure every teenager you know, especially here at Novation, is involved with Dare to Share Live because we get to be part of the epicenter. We had Shane and Shane, the skit guys, Zane Black, Flame the Rapper, myself, others, and we went out and it was awesome. So make sure October 12th is on your calendar for next year and that you guys are a part of that. But join the prayer movement. And then the Life in Six out, uh, Outreach book, Life in Six Words. This is a little uh, book uh, that we wrote several years ago, but it is a uh, highly, um, it's kind of like a graphic novel. And even though it's written for teenagers, um, we, I use it with adults all the time. Uh, the two most important pages are the first two because they're blank. This is where you write a note to a friend or a family member or a neighbor and say, hey, read this book and then let me know what you think. And this is a very visual presentation of the gospel of Christ. And it's a very powerful presentation based on a video we produced called Life in Six Words. These are available in the back for your donation of any amount. Uh, I've written 20 books, but every dollar, every dime, I've never taken a dime for any of them, goes to help us reach a generation with it for the gospel of Jesus Christ. So any donation you make from a quarter to a dollar to whatever uh, is going to help mobilize a generation with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I encourage you to do that because with the challenge I'm going to give you, you're going to need this or something like it. Because the challenge I'm going to give you is what I call the 48-hour challenge. Will you begin that gospel conversation in the next 48 hours? Why 48 hours? Because studies show if you don't do what you've learned within 48 hours, you'll never do it. Why 48 hours? Because I'm sick and stinking tired of Christians just talking about evangelism and not doing it. Some of you may think, well, I don't, I can't. I'm not good at it. I'm going to close with this story. 64th and Ward, there's a King Supers. And probably about 12 years ago, I was there with my son, and I'm rushing through on a Sunday afternoon to get groceries because the Bronco game started at 2, and I didn't want to miss it, right? It's after church, and I'm getting groceries, and I'm going through, and some lady wants to talk. I don't want to talk to this lady. She wants to talk. She's like, sir, can you help me read the prices on the bottled water? I, I don't have my glasses. I lost my glasses. 
So I helped her read, and I'm trying to go, but she wants to talk. You ever get around somebody, just, they, just won't let, they just want to talk, and you're in a hurry? She wanted to talk. She said, yeah, I'm just a mess. I lost my glasses. I, it's because I, my, my dog died. I mean, what are you going to say? Your dog died. If it was a cat, I would have just kept moving like bummer and just gave <laughs> cats. But as a dog, I'm like, well, what happened? She said, I had a one-year-old Great Dane puppy, ran out in the middle of the street, got hit by a car. And then she started doing something that just, just messes you up if you're a guy. She starts, like, crying. Like, tears are coming out of her eye. I'm like, oh, no, no, please don't. It's like she's on fire. Stop, drop, and roll. Don't, no, don't, don't cry. I didn't know what to do. My son knew what to do. He's, he's like five at the time. He goes, it's okay, lady. Your dog's in doggy heaven. You can go to heaven too. Daddy, tell her the gospel. Like, and I remember I trained him. My five-year-old son, I had trained him to share the gospel using what we call the gospel hand. I go, you tell her the gospel. He goes, okay. He holds up his hand. He goes, God loves me. I have sinned. Christ died for me. If I believe, I'll go to heaven. He goes, see, lady, if you believe that Jesus died for you, you go to heaven and be with your dog. She's looking at him like he's a little freak. And so am I. And then she starts losing it. She starts screaming and crying. I'm so mad at God. I lost my son to cancer. Tears coming down her face. And I bought a dog to comfort me in my grief. And now I lost my dog. I'm so mad at God. And everybody's looking at the meltdown in aisle nine at the King Supers and 64th and Ward. But now I'm in. I know this is an opportunity sent from God. And I start sharing Christ with her. My son, he won't shut up. He goes, that's okay. God loves me. I have sinned. I go, back it off, boy. This is what dad gets paid to do, right? So I share Christ with her. She ends up collapsing in her arms. We pray together in the middle of that King Supers. I invite her out to church. I'm leaving. Looking at my son, I go, Jeremy, I was going to miss that opportunity. But you saw her with the eyes of Jesus. I'm so proud of you. And it was one of those special father-son moments. He looks up at me. He goes, you proud of me, Dad? I go, yeah. He goes, did you buy me ice cream? I'm like, yeah, buy my ice cream. Here's why I'm telling you that story. We need to see our friends, our family, co-workers with the eyes of Jesus. And if my five-year-old son can do it, using a Sunday school method, you can do it by handing them a book and saying, read this. Let's talk about it. I want to challenge every believer in this room. Will you take that 48-hour challenge. We begin that gospel conversation this week. Will you do whatever it takes? Let me pray for you. I'm going to pray in an awkward way. You say it, dare to share. Awkward is awesome. So keep your eyes open because I'm going to look in your eyes as I pray for you. Father, I pray for this congregation that you would help every person here who knows your son to be absolutely unashamed of the gospel of Christ. May they know that Jesus, your son, did whatever it took to get to them. And I pray, God, you would fill them with the holy boldness, the Holy Spirit, who dwells inside them to give them the words to say, to give them the courage to bring it up. And I pray, Lord, that next week, when this church gathers back again, they'll have stories of people that they've engaged. And maybe... In 20 to 40 minutes, those people will put their faith in Christ. Maybe it'll take 12 years, but the conversation will begin.
So use every member of this church. Thank you for the four who went from darkness to light today. May they now grow in their faith. May we do whatever it takes to reach more. And all God's children said, amen. 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 Thank you so much.